The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to HealthEd's Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Monday, the 17th of October. In this COVID update, Associate Professor Paul Griffin will be discussing two major topics. La Gavrio did not demonstrate significant reduction in hospitalization and death in the panoramic study. Does it mean it is useless? And recent media coverage of Pfizer's Cominati vaccine found that the vaccine was released for use without good studies to show reduction of COVID transmission. Whilst this may sound somewhat shocking, we need to ask, is it really? Paul, can you tell us about yourself? Hi, yes, of course. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, I'm an infectious diseases physician and clinical microbiologist and have been quite involved in uh, the clinical trials of a lot of COVID vaccines, eight now, in fact, as I'm also the medical director of a a clinical trial company, Nucleus Network. So I've been fortunate enough to have quite a bit of experience in the the clinical trials of uh, quite a few COVID vaccines along the way. Paul, news and media coverage seems to come up with all sorts of new things almost daily. Can I start off by uh, asking you to tell us about the recent panoramic study? Uh, This is regarding Le Gavrio and what kinds of things we need to know about it and how it impacts us. Look, I think this is a really important point because it's shown one of the biggest issues we've faced during the pandemic where we have discussions around a clinical trial or around a drug and and people pick up one line and lose the context around that and can make some some, uh, bad decisions as a result of uh, picking and choosing what information is propagated. So we do need to be very careful about what sources we we get our information from. And, you know, I think that's exactly what's happened with this study. So it's a great trial. I mean, we do need a a lot more studies to, to look at all of our interventions for COVID, but they are becoming more difficult to do because as we look at a population now that's mostly vaccinated and there's been a lot of hybrid immunity as most of us have been exposed, we're not looking at a naive population. And so the risk of severe outcomes from this disease, well, of course it's not zero, has gone down significantly. So if we use severe disease or death as our endpoint, it's very hard to achieve a significant difference with that primary endpoint, because we've essentially modified how probable that'll be with vaccinations and and hybrid immunity. And of course, the fact that our most recent subvariants in the form of Omicron are probably less severe than some of the previous subvariants as well. So for all of those reasons, it's harder to use that primary endpoint of severe disease to achieve a significant result. And if we look at that study, Great study, large sample size involving over 25,000 people. It was randomised, which of course is a strength of any clinical trial, but it was also open label. So, you know, once again, we'd prefer to do randomised double blind placebo controlled clinical trials these days, but they're also more difficult to do in the COVID era. And so obviously the, the headline that's really been propagated from this clinical trial was that there was no significant difference in hospitalisation or death. Um, because the rate was so low in both arms. I believe it was around 0.8% in terms of that primary outcome. But it wasn't all bad news. Whilst that was shared as showing this drug offers no benefit, if you actually look at it in a bit 
greater detail, the secondary outcome, time to recovery, had a, a benefit of some 4.2 days, I believe it was, in terms of a, a, a shorter recovery time in those people that received the drug. Now, the criticism there is that that was open label, so those people knew they were receiving the drug, so, so that might have contributed there, but it did appear to confer a very significant benefit to those people that received it in that time to recovery, and they also appeared to clear the virus faster. When we look at the benefits of an antiviral drug, if there's any benefit in clearance, well, that can certainly help both that person and maybe the people around them. And while this wasn't actually an outcome that was measured well in this trial, maybe that will help reduce uh, the ability for people to transmit. That's a bit of an extrapolation, but a plausible one in my opinion. And having said all that, it was also very safe. Uh, the more serious adverse events occurred at a very low rate of, I think it was around one, uh, sorry, 0.4% in both arms. So we have a safe drug that while it didn't achieve a statistically significant benefit in the primary outcome, did appear to offer a much faster rate of clearance, one that would be even better than we see with uh, antiviral medications for, for the flu, for example. So in many ways, I think this study serves to strengthen uh, our confidence in this drug, provided, of course, we choose the right patients and we look at what we're measuring in terms of defining whether it's offering a benefit or not. Who would you think the right patients are, Paul? So, of course, you know, the, the main thing to say there is that we have to use this drug as it's indicated and approved for in our country and in accordance with guidelines that, that are likely to change. I mean, you know, it would seem to me that uh, people that are higher risk of some of those outcome measures uh, and so things like uh, el people who are elderly and maybe people who have comorbidities, for example, that, uh, that place them at a higher risk of severe disease, well, they're the ones that are likely to get an additional benefit. So uh, I would think we'd stick to using it in people that are higher risk for the time being. But of course, that may be subject to change depending on what happens with the virus and, and what we see with uh, you know, more evidence coming through of who gets the most benefit. There seems to be an overlap between patients uh, who are indicated for this medication, as you've just mentioned, and those for Paxlovid. Uh, how do we make a decision? Yeah, this is an interesting one. So that there are a lot of stats, um, studies similarly assessing um, Paxlovid and some even comparing the two. And I think they'll be really useful because while a lot of people uh, are drawing conclusions one way or another about which drug is, is better, for want of a better word, there hasn't really been a robust head-to-head -head trial for us to be able to compare, um, particularly around efficacy. So a lot of people looked at the initial clinical trials and thought Paxlovid uh, is perhaps more efficacious. Um, but of course, that does come with some restrictions on who's able to use it, particularly in terms of uh, renal function um, and uh, the drug-drug interactions. And so I think because of that, molnupiravir seemed to be the drug that we've used in greater numbers in our country because it is much easier to use. The, the other issue, of course, to talk about with Paxlovid uh, is the, uh, the impression that it, there's a significant viral rebound. So some people can have uh, what appears to be a, a rebound in their illness after completing a course of Paxlovid, more work needs to be done to really work out whether that's just reflective of the natural history otherwise in those individuals, or whether there truly is a, a rebound phenomenon. But at the moment, my advice would be to, you know, once again, use these medications in accordance with uh, their approvals and their local guidelines. And, you know, realistically, uh, I would look to um, using either of those drugs in people that are eligible. And the main thing is to, to initiate them early, because I think that's a big factor too, and how efficacious they are likely to be, is how quickly they're initiated. And with more limitations coming through on testing and, and a lot more commentary that there's uh, less benefits of testing, I think we're probably finding our cases a little bit later 
than we would have previously. And you know, that means that our opportunity to get the most benefit from these drugs is probably being uh, diminished. So, so that's why I'm still a big advocate for testing, particularly in high risk groups, so we can give them the right advice and initiate the, the right antiviral as quickly as possible. Paul, in light of the, if you like, um, darkening economic clouds and the fact that uh, Rio seems to help with the secondary outcomes, what does it cost and what's the cost benefit? Yeah, it is still uh, very expensive. I mean, we're very fortunate in our country that that cost is being picked up by uh, our government. Um, and so these drugs are available to, to people that will will, um, will get benefit from them. Um, and so that's, you know, that's something that uh, is really positive for, for what we've done in this country. And you know, that's obviously something that does need to continue to be assessed. I don't think particularly the, the panoramic study changes that risk benefit equation because we are really still trying to use those in, in the people who will um, likely get the most benefit from them. So, uh, you know, I think it's something that we need to continue to, to monitor, but I think based on all the current uh, available evidence that that cost benefit equation still very much favours using these drugs, particularly if we have an efficient mechanism of getting them to, to eligible people as quickly as we can. Paul, that's really very clear. Of course, many of us would have read the inverted commas, shocking news that the Pfizer vaccine had never been uh, tested for transmission uh, before it was launched. Tell us more about what this hoo-ha is about and what the implications are. Now, once again, I think it highlights just how, you know, information can be taken out of context and, and used to support arguments that, that doesn't really support. And, you know, we, we knew with the clinical trials that uh, were the basis of the approvals of all of our vaccines that, you know, once again, the primary endpoint was symptomatic, microbiologically proven infection. So that was people that developed symptoms, got a PCR and were found to be positive versus those people that weren't. And so that's what uh, approval was based on. And that was a really good outcome measure. It was one that's very measurable and very meaningful and obviously demonstrated tremendous efficacy for all those vaccines that have been approved. And we know that the main way that they work is still prevention of severe disease and death. And they continue to do that very well. Now, transmission is a very useful thing for a vaccine to be able to do, but there are very few vaccines that actually block 100% of infection. And the fact that these vaccines don't is certainly not a failing of them in any way. And we know that transmission or the ability for a vaccine to modify that is actually pretty hard to measure. And so it wasn't really able to be done in those first clinical trials. It was in some of them a secondary endpoint, but certainly wasn't the primary one and certainly not the basis for the approvals. Now, it has been looked at subsequently and often we need you know much more complicated study designs things like looking at household transmissions or or so-called super spreading events to to look at the difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated we've got human challenge models now which are really useful at looking at the ability to block infection and obviously still extrapolating from some animal studies and when we do that it is clear that these vaccines do have an impact on transmission it's of course far from 100 percent so vaccinated people can still be infected but it is reduced. And now this has been further complicated, of course, by the partial immune evasion of the later subvariants of, of COVID, particularly Omicron. And you know, we're seeing that with BA4 and BA5, the recent wave in our country. And so we know that the ability for these vaccines to block infection with these later subvariants is even further reduced, but it's still not zero. In many studies, it would appear that it's probably in the vicinity of 15 to 20%. And now, while of course, we'd like that to be 100. That's still a very meaningful uh, outcome and obviously something that's of tremendous benefit from being vaccinated. And so 
in the end, the discussion that's arisen relating to this really comes down to the fact that transmission is harder to measure. We had to say early on when these vaccines started being used, we didn't know how well they block transmission, but we certainly didn't say they don't block transmission. It's just that we didn't have data to know exactly how well they did that. We have more data now, but the situation is more complicated. They still do help with transmission, but it's not the main way they work. And that's not a criticism of these vaccines. That's very similar to a lot of other vaccines that we use, very similar, and while a very different virus to what we see with influenza as well. And the really good news, I guess, is that we are working on vaccines that might be a little bit better at blocking transmission in the future. And some of those include even an intranasal vaccine where we get a better immune response at that interface where the virus gets in. And that might be something that's a little bit better at blocking that uh, ability for the virus to get in in the first place. So in the end, this comes down to uh, some comments being taken out of context. And these vaccines remain, you know, highly efficacious, particularly in the, in the main way they work, which is preventing severe disease and death. The real world shows us that. Look, that, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, every single person who, who doesn't get infected because they've been protected by vaccination is significant, in my opinion, because even if we reduce the, the amount of the virus that's around by a small proportion, you know, that's obviously something that can be very helpful. So, you know, I think even though the ability to block uh, infection or transmission is, is only relatively low compared to how effective they are at some of those other endpoints, that's still a very meaningful thing and obviously a very significant benefit of being vaccinated. And, you know, we, we get asked a lot in, in my work that, you know, there's people that have managed to stay COVID negative and they keep asking, why is that? And, you know, maybe I'll have a, a superhuman immune system. But for many of those people, it's the contribution of the vaccine. Maybe also a little bit about how they're put together and how their immune system works. But by and large, those people that have remained COVID negative have done so because they're protected by vaccination. And so, you know, the, the ability of these vaccines to stop infection in at least some people and, and transmission has been very significant. And, and so, yeah, I'd certainly want to make sure people understand that this recent commentary in no way is a flaw of these vaccines. Look, I think that's a really challenging uh, situation that's arisen there. And you know, we have to remember that you know, local guidelines, we need to be very cautious from extrapolating to our situation because there are a lot of things that potentially influence those. And, and a lot of those can come down to uh, experiences and expectations of the population in which those guidelines apply. And you know, we are very fortunate in our country to have a, a group of experts who have demonstrated time and time again that they're incredibly rigorous in, in their assessments of vaccines and safety to recommend them. And of course, you know, that's a target and they've been criticised for being slow to recommend vaccines repeatedly because they do want to make sure they have more than sufficient evidence to be very confident with recommendations. And so if they 
and this is the case, have recommended these vaccines in whatever age group we're talking about, we can be very confident that's the right decision. And of course, the, the recommendation doesn't stop at that initial um, process and that, that approval, it continues. And if we saw a safety signal with vaccines in any age group or other population, then we would modify how we used our vaccines accordingly. And of course, that was the experience we saw with AstraZeneca. A very cautious approach was taken when we did see an adverse event occurring in a certain population higher than others. We changed the age group in which that vaccine was recommended. And if we were seeing a concern in a younger group with an mRNA vaccine, well, then we would change that recommendation. But there's been no evidence that's required. And so we can continue to be confident recommending those vaccines for those groups. And just to uh, give my real world experience, I have uh, three children. And as soon as the mRNA vaccines were approved in their age group, I went and got all three of them vaccinated. They had no adverse events. And I felt very reassured that they were protected, particularly during our recent Omicron wave, uh, given the risks that were around. So, and I wouldn't have done that, of course, if I had any genuine reservations at all about the safety of that vaccine in that group. So, as I say, I think we can be very confident that we have uh, the right people making the, those recommendations and we should look to our own guidelines to uh, recommend vaccines for our patients. I mean, I think that's what many of us have been saying. It really is a matter of uh, when, not if. And I think the thing that's a bit different this time is we previously have seen some individual subvariants outcompete the preceding subvariant in a number of locations. At the moment, it's quite complicated because there's a number of subvariants that appear to be really picking up in a number of different locations. But it does appear that there's a consistent upward trajectory in many parts of the world at the moment that should be taken very seriously. And of course, I don't think anybody's going to go back to recommending border restrictions and lockdowns. But what we do need to do is really focus on our key mitigation strategies, get our communication right about vaccination, make sure we're ready to use antivirals and long-acting antibodies, for example, to, to treat and protect our most vulnerable patients, continue to recommend masks and testing, make sure people understand the importance still of staying home, even though that's now uh, not rigorously enforced, it's still a very firm recommendation. And so we need to make sure people understand that all those things are going to remain important for the foreseeable future. And, you know, this forest should really be considered quite manageable these days with the tools we have available, provided they're utilised to their fullest capacity. If we get complacent, well, then I do fear that we're going to have a very challenging time. And whether it's days, weeks or months away, it is unfortunately inevitable. I know, and I think it really highlights a, a big communication gap. And, and while I guess the removal of a lot of those mandates is, is a whole nother discussion, I think we really failed in telling people that even though the rules are changing, the benefits of those interventions are not being diminished. Those, it, we're not saying, well, we shouldn't be saying those things don't work. We're just giving people a choice. And so we need to continue to encourage and facilitate people doing all of those things. I think we should still be supplying masks at high-risk venues to show we genuinely 
um, believe in their ability to, to help people. I think we need to have more proactive campaigns, particularly around boosters. And, you know, it's great. We have our first Omicron specific booster now available, but I think many people just see COVID as something that's over. And, you know, that's clearly not the case. And I think we just need to get that messaging really on point that we're not trying to alarm people. We're not trying to suggest we're going to go back to some of those harsh restrictions we just want people to do some really basic things moving forward to keep themselves and everybody as safe as possible. Oh, I think that's a, a very accurate summation. Yep, I agree. No problem. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.